0: Series in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a great book, so I'm excited about it. But like all the books in the Bible, Exodus is not a standalone book. It doesn't stand by itself, it's part of a larger story. It's book two of a series, and the author assumes that we've read book one, Genesis. And why do you keep reading the next book in a series? Usually it's because the first book was pretty good, right? But also because it left some things unresolved. You want to know what happens next. You got some questions that haven't been resolved. And that's sort of the reason that most of us approach Scripture in the first place, right? Why did you pick up a Bible in the first place? A lot of us had questions. We want to know answers to the big questions of life. Who am I? Who is God? Why is this world so messed up? And what's God doing about it if he's out there? Well, Genesis answered a few of those questions, but it left some other questions unresolved. So we come to Exodus with that tension. See, God showed that he was doing something in the book of Genesis, but it's not all clear yet. Genesis answered the question of why this world is so messed up, and it showed that God promised to do something about it. But we don't know if he'll follow through on that promise we don't know how. That's what drives us to book two. We approach Exodus with a question. Will God fulfill his promise? Well, lucky for us, our writer isn't too concerned about giving spoilers. We don't get all the details yet, but at the very beginning of this book of Exodus, he sort of gives away the ending. It gives an answer to our question. Will God fulfill his promise? The answer given by these first two chapters of Exodus is, yes, God will but he'll do it in his own way. That's the message of our passage today. God will fulfill his promise, God's way. God will, God's way. His way is often what we least expect. So as we go through this passage, we're going to see three surprises that give away this ending, that God will, God's way. So our passage today is Exodus chapters 1 and 2. So you can turn there in your Bibles or find that on your app if you have one. And uh, as Brandon mentioned, there are Bibles in the back if you need one. Now, this is a pretty long text, so we're going to read through it in chunks, uh, but we are going to read all of it. Um, So in our first section, we can already tell that God will fulfill his promise. There's evidence of it. There's evidence of it because of our first surprise, unlikely fruitfulness. We can see this in the first 14 verses of our text. So we're going to read that now. I don't know if you guys usually stand to read God's word, but we do, so if you would please stand up for the reading of God's word. Starting in Exodus 1 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, this book of Exodus begins on the same note that Genesis ended. Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt, and they died there. Death was an ever-present companion in the book of Genesis. Everywhere we heard about people dying. But here in the midst of death, God continues to bring life. Look at verse 7. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, then this verse should ring some bells. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. These words echo through the book of Genesis multiple times, and so we can't hear them properly here in Exodus unless we hear that echo. So we need to rewind for a little bit. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God created the first human couple, Adam and Eve. You guys know this. But he gave them a mandate. It says this in Genesis 1:28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There are those words again. Multiply, fill, fruitful. See, humanity was intended to fill the earth and rule it as God's representatives. Of course, it wasn't long before that first human couple disobeyed God's instructions. They failed at the mandate that God gave them. Instead of representing God and ruling the earth for him, they rebelled against him. They wanted to rule instead of God rather than under God. So sin and death entered the world. And in the chapters that follow this tragedy, people do multiply and fill the earth, but sin and death are multiplied right along with it. And despite second chances given by God, human beings repeatedly fail to obey him. They fail to live up to this mandate that they've been given. It's clear that humanity is incapable of fixing this sin problem on their own. Well, what's to be done? God does something. God chooses a single family, the family of Abraham, and he gives a promise. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham three things. He promises, first, to make his family exceedingly fruitful and to multiply him and his descendants like the stars in the sky. Second, he promises to give his descendants a land to call their own, the promised land, the land of Canaan, to dwell in. And third, he promises that through these descendants of Abraham, He'll bless all the nations of the earth. This three-part promise is passed on to Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob and to all of his descendants who came to be known by the name of Israel. These people of the promise were going to be God's vehicle, God's instrument to fix this world broken by sin. But at the end of the book of Genesis, a famine threatens this family of Israel. They threaten the fruitfulness that God promised to them are they just going to die out because of this famine? But no, God provides food for the family down in Egypt. He gets Jacob's son Joseph into the court of Pharaoh himself, and he uses his influence in Egypt to save not only Israel, but Egypt itself. So it says in Genesis forty-seven twenty-seven: Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. There's those words again, fruitful and multiply. So now we come to the book of Exodus, about 400 years after Joseph, and Israel continues to multiply. That's what we read in verse 7 of our passage. But we get a clue in verse 8 that things might be about to change. This fruitfulness might be threatened yet again. It says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This Pharaoh doesn't remember how the Israelite Joseph not only saved Israel, but saved Egypt as well. He doesn't remember why these Hebrews were allowed to dwell in his land in the first place. In fact, he's starting to think that they're a threat. He's saying they're becoming too many, too strong. They're dangerous. What if these foreigners join our enemies and turn against us and then escape from the land? So Pharaoh has an idea to contain their rampant population growth and also put it to use. He'll make them slaves. He plans to afflict them with heavy burdens, and that's what he does. But instead of the result he desires, something unlikely happens. Look at verse 12. It says, The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread. Pharaoh's plan backfires. He thinks he's shrewdly managing this Hebrew problem, but really he's just making matters worse. For someone who thinks he's in control, this is really frustrating and scary, right? It says the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were afraid. They hated these Israelites. Pharaoh's hatred and paranoia are growing greater and greater. So he burdens them with even harsher slavery. Look at verses 13 and 14. Look at how many times the word work is mentioned here. Work, 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 work. Four times. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And when that doesn't work, Pharaoh gets even more ruthless. His next tactic is infanticide, killing the baby boys. He orders the midwives to kill every male child that's born to the Hebrews. He's directly threatening the promise that God gave to them of fruitfulness, of multiplying their descendants. He's directly threatening the promise. But look what happens in verse 20. God's not going to let that happen. It says, the people multiplied and grew very strong. The people are becoming many and mighty. The exact thing that Pharaoh was afraid of, up in verse 9. God is Pharaoh's worst nightmare, because despite everything he tries to oppose God's people, despite the slavery and the infanticide, despite everything he does, God is able to fulfill his promise to the descendants of Abraham. And Pharaoh's oppression actually recalls something from the very first few chapters of the Bible. The curse in Genesis 3 that resulted from humanity's sin, it affected two main areas, childbearing and work. Because we've rebelled against God, the very things that human beings were made to do, filling the earth with human life by having descendants and working it productively, having dominion over the earth, those two things have become hard and painful. And the oppression of Pharaoh epitomizes these effects of the curse. What kind of work could be more toilsome than slavery? What could make childbearing more painful than having your child killed right when it comes out of the womb? So Egypt is a dark place. Egypt is about as far away from the Garden of Eden as it gets. And yet, it's in Egypt that God is fulfilling his promise. He's bringing about unexpected, unlikely fruitfulness in this dark place. In the very place where the brokenness of creation is felt most strongly, that's where God is causing his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as they were meant to in the beginning. In the words of Jesus, what is impossible with man is possible with God. No matter the opposition, no matter how unlikely it appears, God will fulfill his promise. Pharaoh is this agent of uncreation, He's like sin itself, he's trying to undo the good that God has made. But the Creator God is more powerful. He won't fail to fulfill his promise to multiply Abraham's descendants. But what about the second part of his promise? To have a land for them to call their own. To give them the land of Canaan to possess. That promise is threatened too. Right now they're slaves in Egypt. They're at the mercy of this evil dictator, and he's not really too keen on letting them leave. Well, if God is fulfilling one promise, then he can be trusted to fulfill another. If he was able to bring about unlikely fruitfulness in Egypt, then he can bring about unlikely freedom as well. See, God was not surprised by these 400 years in Egypt. His plans were not derailed or postponed. God doesn't go back to the drawing board even when we think things have gone all wrong. Look at Genesis fifteen thirteen to 14. This is what God promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. He It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. See, God saw this coming. He's a God who sees the beginning and the end. He's not surprised. He can bring about his good plan even in the midst of evil because he sees the whole picture. Only this kind of God who sees the beginning and the end can bring about his good will out of evil, out of situations that seem impossible. Going down to Egypt was part of the plan. It didn't stop God's promise promise to multiply them, and it won't stop his promise to bring them out of there and into their own land. So the book of Exodus immediately gives us an implied answer to our question that we bring to it. Will God fulfill his promise? Yes, God will. But how he'll do it is just as important. God will God's way. In the next section of our text, we see another surprise, and we start to realize that God's way isn't what we might expect. We can tell because God works through unlikely heroes. Let's continue reading in verse 15 of our text. Then the the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's stop there for now. Well, in this passage, we see Pharaoh going from bad to worse. But really, he's sticking pretty close to the evil dictator playbook. I mean, how do you prevent people from rising up against you? You make them do harsh, demeaning labor, and you take out all the males. If they don't have any young men to fight for them, then they can't rebel against you, right? And it's even better if you can turn their own people against them and have them do your dirty work. So what does Pharaoh do? He asks the Hebrew midwives to kill the Hebrew boys. It's common sense, really. He he learned this in Authoritarianism 101. It's the basic playbook for evil dictators. But Pharaoh's common sense is running into problems. His usual tactics aren't working because this is an unconventional uprising. This isn't an armed rebellion. It's not a coup. Israel is becoming many and mighty, but they aren't going to fight against him as he fears. The heroes who will oppose him are not the ones that we might expect, and certainly not what he expects. Pharaoh thinks that the Hebrew males are a threat to his power, but really, it's the females. First, these Hebrew midwives foil his plans and deceive him. He thinks he can coerce them into murdering their own people, but it turns out that these women fear Someone else more than Pharaoh. It says twice the midwives feared God. They feared God more than man. It's something that I'm sure you guys saw in your series in Acts. It's something that we've seen throughout church history that God can do amazing things with just a few people who fear him more than all else. He can use a couple of midwives to foil the plans of a dictator but we tend to think more like Pharaoh than God, don't we? We expect the course of history to be directed by people who are strong and influential. We expect God to play by the world's rules, using people who are capable and strong to do his will. But God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes we count out ourselves or others from doing something because we lack some ability, but really all God wants is someone who's faithful. Sometimes God doesn't need a person who's strong. Sometimes he just needs somebody who fears him above all else. Of course, these midwives aren't the only people who God works through in this story. He even uses people who don't know him. Everyone who Pharaoh fails to recognize as a threat turns out to be one. First, these Hebrew midwives, then the mother and sister of Moses who put him in the river in a basket, and then Pharaoh's own daughter, who takes the child out of the water and makes him her own. The seeds of Pharaoh's undoing are planted by the people he ignored, the women. Because God is causing this unconventional uprising, and he's using unexpected heroes. Notice a couple more ironies in this story. Pharaoh thought he would turn the Hebrew midwives against their own people, but God turns his own family against him. Pharaoh thought the Nile River would be a means of destruction for the Hebrew boys, but God uses it as a means of salvation for baby Moses. Pharaoh is trying to undo Israel with cruelty, but God is undoing Egypt with mercy, shown by these unlikely heroes. See, Pharaoh thinks he's in control, but he's never been in control. Everything that he meant for evil, God can use for good. God won't be stopped from fulfilling his promise. He'll do it his way with the people Pharaoh at least expects. But there is one male Hebrew who Pharaoh was right to be worried about. He's named Moses. He's an unlikely hero too, because he really ought to be dead. The Nile should have killed him. Pharaoh's daughter should have killed him. But instead, she saved him. Moses, the boy who lived. We already know that he's going to be special. I mean, why are we zooming in on this one baby boy? And his story is the kind of story that we're familiar with. In the midst of death and hopelessness, one person survived a spark of hope. And besides his unique birth, he also had a unique upbringing. He's nursed by his own mother, but then he's adopted into Pharaoh's family. He's an Israelite and yet an Egyptian, a slave and yet a prince. He's going to be no ordinary man. Surely, he'll be the one to save his people. He'll be like Joseph who came before, right? An Israelite in Pharaoh's court who uses his power and his position to save his people. Well, let's see what happens next. Picking up in verse 11 of chapter 2. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread and Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's stop there. Wait, what? This is the chosen one? This is the boy who lived? He was supposed to liberate his people, right? He just, what does he do? He just kills one dude, he gets rejected by his own people, He gets scared and runs away, and now he's just in this foreign land, basically out of the picture. He's just settling down with this shepherd family and making babies. I mean, talk about a plot twist. Moses is not the hero we expected. What is happening here? Well, God is once again doing something unexpected. We know God will fulfill his promise, God's way. God's way includes includes not just unlikely heroes, but... Unlikely means. That's our third surprise in this passage. God is using the means we least expect to fulfill his promise. In this case, failure. There isn't much else that you can call this debacle with Moses than a failure. The first thing Moses does in the story, apart from not tip the basket over, is fail. Why? Well, the text doesn't give us a clear reason why Moses failed, but I think it gives us some clues. Did Moses have bad motivations for what he did? I don't think so. In fact, there are two places in the New Testament where this scene is mentioned, Acts 7 and Hebrews 11, and both of them paint Moses in a pretty positive light. Why? Because he chose to identify with the Hebrew people rather than the Egyptians. Look what verse 11 says of our text today. He went out, probably from the Egyptian royal palace, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses was raised an Egyptian, but he knows who his people are. He sees the injustice being done to them, and he rightly acts to defend one of his people. So where does Moses go wrong? I don't think it's his motivation that's off. It's his methods, his means. There are two different words that are repeated three times in a row in this paragraph that we've got to see. The first one is the word strike, also translated beat. Starting in verse 11, it says, He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. Then he struck down the Egyptian. And then he asked the Hebrew man, Why do you strike your companion? Three instances of the word strike. Then we see three instances of the word kill. In verse 14, the Hebrew man asks Moses, Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then in verse 15, Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. Well, what's the point of all this? It seems that our hero Moses acts in much the same way as the villains. He strikes just like the Egyptian strikes the Hebrew, he kills just like Pharaoh tries to kill him. So when he tries to stop his fellow Hebrews from striking one another, unsurprisingly, they don't want to hear it from him. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me too? You think you're going to save us and liberate us from Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Well, you're just like them. They don't want a liberator who uses the same means as their oppressor. Moses fails because he tries to save God's people Pharaoh's way. But God means to save them God's way. Now, I'm not saying this passage is condemning violence in all forms. There are times when violence is necessary, especially to defend the helpless, That's what Moses does in Midian. Down in verse 17, he defends these women of Midian from the shepherds, and he probably has to use some violence to do that. Once again, his heart is in the right place. He acts to save helpless people from injustice. And this time, he's successful. Why is he successful in Midian, but a failure in Egypt? I don't think it's that God forbids violence. God is not a pacifist. In fact, spoiler alert, God will use some violence against Egypt in this book. In the very next chapter, he says he will strike Egypt. Same word. But that's exactly the point. God will. After this instance of violence by Moses, after this utter failure, nobody is going to fight against Egypt. Nobody's going to lift a finger against Pharaoh in this book except God. God will. God will fulfill his promise, he's going to deliver his people but he's not going to do it Pharaoh's way or Moses' way. He's going to do it God's way. Because the way he does it is the whole point. God could have brought his people out of Egypt by a slave rebellion, led by this mighty warrior Moses, but that's not what he chooses to do. That would have missed the whole point. It would have confused the message. See, God's actions in the book of Exodus speak just as loud as his words. They send a message. Exodus is all about God revealing who he is. It's about God making himself known through what he does. The Exodus from Egypt is not just a story of redemption, it's a story of revelation. That's where our series title comes from, Revelation and Redemption. God redeems in a way that reveals who he is. Who he is will be forever tied to what he's done after this. Every little Hebrew boy and girl growing up, would hear about the Lord our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's who your God is. Who did that? He's the God who fulfills his promises. He's faithful. He's a redeemer. He's a savior. That's who he is. Which means that his character is revealed most clearly when he does the saving. Not us. Not Moses. Moses. His power is made perfect in human weakness. That's what Exodus is about. The message of this book is going to become more and more clear as we go along. But here's what the message of Exodus is so far You cannot save yourself, only God can save. We really need to get that. If we miss that, we'll miss the whole point of the book of Exodus, we'll miss the whole point of the Bible itself. This book, it's not about how to be a Moses. It's not about how to improve yourself. It's not about what you can do with a little help from God to save yourself. It's about what only God can do. His people aren't those who have the strength to save themselves. His people are those who cry out to the Almighty, and He saves them. That's what's foreshadowed at the end of our passage today that Jeff read earlier. Look at verses 23 and 25 again. During those many days... The king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard and remembered and saw, and God knew. That's, that's an interesting way of putting it, right? Right? because God sees and hears everything. God forgets nothing. God already knows everything. It's not as if God was taking a nap for the past 400 years and then these cries of the Israelites just disturbed his slumber. It's not like he was lacking motivation, like he didn't want to get up out of bed and then all of a sudden the Israelites cried out and he decided to do something. But he's about to act in a new way. And it is a response to his people crying out to him, rescue. God acts precisely what he means to, but in his providence, he causes it to coincide with his people depending on him, crying out to him in prayer. Why? So there's no confusing who the Savior is. You only cry out to God like that when you realize that you can't save yourself. When you realize that only God can save, that's when you cry out to him in prayer. God works through these unlikely means of human failure and weakness and dependence so that God alone is recognized as the Savior. And God gets the glory. I know some of you have been crying out to God for something for a long time now. Maybe you're crying out for healing, crying out for justice, crying out for change, crying out for something For God to do something. Well, this image of this passage is for you. God sees. God hears. God knows. God knows the pain that comes with this world broken by sin. Broken bodies. Broken minds. Broken systems. Broken homes. A world so broken so far from Eden that sometimes we can barely remember what wholeness feels like. It's a world a little too like Egypt. But God remembers what things were like in the beginning. And he sees what it's like now. God doesn't just know the pain of our broken world. He cares. He's not indifferent. He remembers what it was like in the beginning when he made all things good. And he's promised to make it good again. He's promised to make things whole. He bound himself to that promise in a covenant made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And God never forgets his covenants. For the people of Israel in our text today, that means God will fulfill his promise to bring them out of slavery and into their own land. But for us, it means something far better. Because in the fullness of time, this very same God came and visited his people in human form. He was born of a woman born of a descendant of Abraham. He came to forge a new covenant in his own blood. He saw our pain with human eyes. He heard our pain with human ears, and he knew it in his own human flesh. He made a covenant in his own blood so that we could be freed from slavery to an even crueler master than Pharaoh. Sin itself, that original agent of uncreation that's trying to undo what God has done, But God the Son, the creator of all things, was broken so that his creation could be made whole. And that includes us. Through Jesus Christ, the third promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. Blessing on all the nations of the earth, whoever would believe in him. That means, once again, though, his redemption is contingent upon something. A cry for help. A confession that we're slaves to sin and we can't redeem ourselves. Human weakness and dependence, those are God's unlikely means of redemption. Salvation comes through the most unlikely of heroes. Emmanuel, God with us. Not to conquer and kill, but to die. And the most unlikely of means, repentance and faith. A simple cry for help. That's God's way. The problem is that we often want to be saved our own way. We want to save ourselves. We want to be saved our own way, not God's way. We're like Moses. We pursue the right goal with the wrong means. There's something within us that wars against the kind of salvation that requires us to be weak rather than strong. But that's the only salvation there is. There are likely some of you here today who have never really trusted in God to save you. You might think of God as somebody who gives you a leg up, the kind of God who helps those who help themselves. You might think of God as just somebody who helps you to save yourself. If that's you, then God's word to you today is stop trying to save yourself. Only God can save. Trust in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But maybe you've already done that. Maybe this all seems really obvious to you. God's message to you is, don't forget who saved you. You'd be surprised how easy it is to forget. One of my favorite passages in the Bible comes in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses warns the Israelites about the dangers of forgetting. He basically says this, when you get to the promised land, don't forget who got you there. When you experience rest in Canaan, Don't forget slavery in Egypt and the God who brought you out of it. Because when you forget who saved you, then the false gods of all the people around you start to look a lot more useful, a lot more worthy of worship. Money, likability, knowledge, education, the perfect outfit or the perfect put-together family. What's the false god that you're tempted to worship? If you're basically a self-saved person who just needs a little leg up, then those seem like just the gods you need. So why not bow down and worship? But if you remember that you were a slave, that you were helpless, and you cried out and God saved you, then you realize just how worthless those false gods are. So may you never forget your exodus. May you never forget the God who saved you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you hear our cries. Thank you that even though we human beings have rebelled against you, you've been working even thousands of years ago to bring about our redemption through Jesus Christ. You did not leave your creation and leave your people to their own devices to suffer in the sin that we've brought upon ourselves. But you acted, God. You sent your own son to die for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray for each person here. I pray for those who haven't put their trust in Christ, that they would humble themselves, that they would cry out to you and be saved, Lord. And I pray for those of us who have done that. Father, don't let us forget what you've done. Don't let us, even though we've been saved by Christ, start to rely on ourselves. Don't let us turn to the false gods of the people around us. God, let us remember what you've done for us. So Lord, I ask you to be present now as we worship you. Fill us with your spirit that you would be glorified. And that we would know deep down in our souls that only you can save, that we belong to you. Lord, would you get all the glory today? Pray in Jesus' name.